Welcome to the Rugby Rant Podcast Show, your premier North American rugby podcast. Growing rugby, one fan at a time. Welcome, rugby fans. Here we are again for another fantastic opportunity to put a rugby insider on your screen here in the Rugby Run, Run, Pass or Kick interviews. And of course, we cannot have an interview without a guest. And that is why I take the opportunity to welcome to our screen for the first time, although many people will know this name, having read him in several different versions, a great authority when it comes to rugby. Welcome to the show. Martin Pangeli. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's a pleasure pleasure to have somebody of your caliber on the show. You you give us a bit of panache, if you will. (laughs) Panache. Um, That reminds me of a line from uh, In the Line of Fire, one of my favorite Clint Eastwood films about (laughs) how panache is spelled. Uh, Rob's already got like one bonus point for like word of the day. I'll work on more, but I'm I'm afraid I embarrass myself in in front of a a, a literary uh, personality like uh, Martin. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that yet. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, then why do we have you here, Martin? Um, <laughs> all jokes aside, you truly are one of the great uh, I would say rugby minds here on U.S. soil. But really, interestingly enough, you're you know. If folks haven't noticed yet, there's a little bit of an accent uh, far farther from mine, but it does travel across from the UK. Leeds, in fact, is uh, where you originally call home. But you came to the US back in 2012. And I just want folks who are tuning in to be able to understand the pedigree of, of your rugby experience combined with your journalism background, which notably has you working with The Independent, The Times and The Guardian, where you currently hold a position as the breaking news editor, uh, in addition to, I believe, you're going to be taking on an even newer role moving out to D.C., and we'll be touching on that throughout the course of this interview here. And while we do so, the real reason that we have you here, as I'm sure Rob will reveal in just a moment, is because you, my friend, have brought a tremendous story to life, and through its words and those pages, you're sharing some great rugby tales that deserve to be told. And that's why you're here today. But it's best before we dive into that to be able to hand the microphone over to Rob Hammerschmidt to remind everybody how the Run Parcel Kick interview goes. Thank you, Ty. And welcome, Martin. It's Again, it's always a pleasure. For those who are uninitiated in the Run Passer Kick interview, it works like this. We're going to throw some questions at Martin, and we're going to prompt each question with, either run, pass, or kick. And Martin's going to let you, the viewer, know which option he's going to choose. Like any good rugby mind with a quality IQ, he's got to make a split-second decision. And so a run decision means that he's going to answer the question. However, Martin can choose to pass a question, which means he's going to go ahead and not answer it, which is all right with us. Although I have a feeling he's going to take a lot of these on the front foot right away. But he can also have a bit of fun with us with the third option, which is to kick. And all that means is that Martin's going to let us answer on his behalf in a way that we think he would answer. And it's his opportunity to put us on the back foot, make us work a little bit and have a little bit of fun. Uh, and then he can follow it up with, you know, giving any kind of response like, you know, boys, you, you really lost that up. Or he can tell us that we did just fine. It's completely up to him. Nevertheless, Martin, are you ready for the run, pass, or kick challenge, mate? I am. Um, I'm slightly disappointed as a former second row forward. There's no mauling option. Run, pass, <laughs> kick, or maul. You know, oh, and in the U.S., we don't do a lot of mauling, uh, or at least quality mauling, I should say. Do a lot of running, and that's about it. Um, all right, so I'm going to start us off with the first question. And, of course, it's a run, pass, or kick option. Your book, Brotherhood, When the West Point Went to War, will be released in October. What is the story about? And I have a follow-up for this one. Well, I have to run with it. The story is, um, it's a story of West Point Rugby. It's not the story of West Point Rugby in itself. It's a story from one point in West Point Rugby's time. Um, short version is 2002, the West Point Bicentennial class went on tour to Europe. Uh, they were there to play Saint-Cyr in France, who they beat, and play Sandhurst uh, in outside London. And 
as far as I know, as far as I've worked out from looking at old documents, um, a game against London Welsh fell through and Santa said, Rosslyn Park Football Club, jolly good chaps for a game. Uh, that was me. I was a second row forward for Rosslyn Park's emerging players 15, which was sort of an extra second 15, basically a third 15, because Rosslyn Park then as now was a very a top amateur club there. I was 24, not long out of college, playing, you know, pretty seriously, but not totally seriously, <laughs> I suppose you put it that way. And one Thursday night, we went to Aldershot uh, outside London to the British military sports ground and played a game against these West Point cadets. And it was strange and unusual. We'd never seen anything quite like that before. Um, we won 45-21, I think, or maybe 41-25, one of the two. Uh, and it genuinely stuck in my mind. I met some of the players afterwards. I met my opposite number, who I now know is a gigantic Texan called Brian Phillips. Um, he made an impression on me because he's I'm six foot five and he was five inches clearer of me oh. um, in the second row, as I said. Well. Uh, Brian gave me a shot glass. I thought it was just it was just a, a rugby occasion, you know. You play a touring team, you you have a good laugh, you have a beer afterwards. It was a quick beer because we had to go to London. They had to go back to wherever they were staying, Sandos, I think. Um, and it it lingered in my head for what turned out to be a long time. What turned out to be thirteen years of me wondering vaguely what would, what had happened to that team. Um, it was 2002. It was a year shy of the invasion of Iraq, but it was at the point when everyone knew Iraq was coming and Afghanistan was always go, already going on. Um, and then purely circumstantial to that, I met an American, married her. She's my wife, Kate, is from Boston. I moved to uh, New York in 2012 to work for the Garden US, uh, have children here, settle down. I'm fully settled in. Three, three children all born in New York. And um, eventually in 2015 with the World Cup coming up, I wanted to do, I started writing about American rugby through other channels. I wanted to do something in depth. Um, I said to our sports editor who's still here, um, can I go and do a long form story on this these West Point players? Just simply find out what happened to them, nothing more. Uh, he said, yes, I went to West Point and it went from there. That was eight years ago and I've never been able to drop the yeah mm -hmm. let me ask a quick follow-up and this should be uh pretty simple but did west point's 2022 national championship make your work that much sweeter <laughs> it did a bit because i'm, I'm not i'm not afraid of um so run um, i'm not afraid of uh, <laughs> we figured it after you jumped into it that's okay you'll get used to the rhythm <laughs> yeah i'll get there um rolling more fall over <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it works. Yeah, it did a bit. Um, I've, I've, you know, I'm not. I have, I have repertorial objectivity, of course, but mm -hmm. I've become quite tied in to West Point rugby over the past eight years, as naturally you would. Um, also, because these guys I was writing about, they're probably two, three years younger than me. Um, they're of a similar generation. They would, they were. The, the O2 guys who were played against in O2, in, in O2 would have been therefore 21, 22. And I was only 24. Um, so some of them I've become quite good friends with, which is a bit awkward when you're writing a book. Um, and Army Rugby, I've sort of... The whole structure of Army Rugby has been very welcoming on it, from old grey through. I've met 61 grads from the original class. I've met people all the way through. Um, H.R. McMaster has written the introduction for the book. We actually, oh. actually first talked to him uh, through other, well, no, through rugby channels, but through a sort of, and a, an interview about rugby, but it was predicated on him having just left um, the Trump administration. So it crossed to my day job a bit. Um, mm -hmm. So when, I think, have I written, I think I've written this in the book. Um, when the national championship happened in 2022, uh, some of the players, not not many of them, but a few of them were there because Brian, my gigantic opposite number, Brian Phillips, former football lineman, 6'10", just a wall of human, um, who made such a big impression on me originally and has become a, a, a decent friend. He was there in Houston because he lives in Houston. He works in Houston. Mm -hmm. And Mike Mahan, the coach, the man who is West Point Rugby, who's done so much to help the project, was there too. And Mike told me about, I've written this in the book, Mike told me about Coach Mahan crying when they won. 
because they oh, had imagine. It was it was his ultimate aim, and you know the O2 class were one of the classes who came quite close and got absolutely spanked by Cal Berkeley. Yeah. So it was like I watched it. I was the, that night in Houston. I was I was lying on my bed over there watching it, streaming it, and I found myself supporting them. And I, and it's there's no point saying anything any otherwise. I you know I'm not. Um, I hope I'm not counting myself out that anybody who's connected to Navy rugby might buy the book. But um, <laughs> it's, well, it's well, you know, I mean. I, honestly, though, I think anybody that served or anybody that's connected with one of the military academies can appreciate what they accomplished on that day. And it, and it set a precedence. Now we've had two military academies, you know, win national championships on the hoof, um, which is great to see because these are American boys. Yeah. And in many cases, they're playing against guys who have grown up like yourself playing in England or South Africa, like Ty, or, you know, in New Zealand or Australia. Hmm. I, I found... As an outsider, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Military Academy West Point drew me in. I'm a history grad. I'm a double history grad um, writer. I was I was like a sucker for it. I was it was bound to happen. But I have I have you know a service background in my family. Um, my mum's side British Army. My dad's side uh, Royal Navy. Um, it's always been something I've been interested in, and so it's been something. It was sort of waiting for me, really. Mm. I think. That's yeah. all the, the history, dude. Uh, I'm going to take the opportunity, Martin, to dive into the next question. And uh, you touched upon it a moment ago that this story has been with you from your own youth, having been connected through playing the game. Uh, and the story really never left you. And you've had mm -hmm. great friendships. And this is really the, kind of the makeup of, of, of many great rugby stories and relationships in between, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why maybe it resonates with, with the rugby community and resonated with you. So this story really began that you found it in your youth, having had the opportunity to play, but the story really started to take shape back in 2015 with an article mm -hmm. uh, at the time, again, written with The Guardian, uh, then a slightly different title. You now shortened it to Brotherhood, um, but the key part is, is, is still the same. Um, and then in 2020, uh, when I was doing some research, I saw you posted on your Twitter account, I'm writing a book. Mm. You know, what was the moment then that said to you, now's the time to tell the story? Uh, run again. It was, um, it was very, well, it was, it, it was a very American way of happening. The story went out in 2015. The story is still there online. Um, it had my, you, you mentioned the title. It had my, my preferred title, which the publisher has quite rightly told me I can't have, which is a line of Shakespeare, which is he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Mm -hmm. Henry V, my favorite. Shakespeare, the Shakespeare my mum, an English lecturer, introduced me to when I was 10. Fits very well with rugby, so on and so on. Um, that piece is still up. It's a, it's a spoiler sitting there. It will tell you, not the whole story by any means, I've discovered a lot more for the book, but it will tell you where it ends up. Um, that piece was, uh, actually, no, it wasn't that piece. It wasn't that piece. I have to I always have to remember that. Um, 2017. I was. I was about to say 2015. I didn't feel like it was a spoiler. Well, it's not a spoiler. It's just it tells you the story of what happened to these guys. Right, right. The framework, everything. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it tells you. I mean, if you read that piece, you just look it up online. There it is. That's what happened to Jim Gervitz at the end of it in Baghdad. I've learned a lot more for the book just by talking to a lot more people and doing a lot more research. But the conclusion is still the same. Um, it. Uh, 2017, I did a piece for the New York Times. I did an op-ed about um, uh, what it's like being a rugby fan in America um, and what American rugby is like. They were, I don't, they were curious. I think it was a, a editor who'd moved from the Guardian US who was like, something, something woke him up. <laughs> he asked me to write rugby. So I wrote about that. And a literary agent got in touch, a guy called David Hale-Smith, who was great, um, who played scrum half at Kenyon in Ohio. And that tends to be, to me, how U.S. rugby connections work. He was like, right. love the piece. Have you got any book ideas? And I said, yes, I do. There's this West Point story that I think will hold a book. And he loved it. And with his help, I wrote a, uh, a book proposal, which is quite a detailed bit of work. The whole summer 2017, I, I wrote on that. I wrote three chapters, most of which are in the book in some form. Um it was a slightly different approach. It was to try and tell the story of their final season because the, the O2 class's final season started pretty much started with 9-11. That was two uh -huh. days after they played Ohio State in their first game. Um, 
and that was shopped to major publishing houses as the book that could break rugby in America, and nobody picked it up, which is just how it goes. It was an mm. exciting time, um, didn't really happen. So that went into abeyance, but I stayed in touch with the players because I got to know Matt Blinn, the captain, Brian, the big second row, a few others, Scott Radcliffe on the back rows. Um, stayed in touch. Social media is, is wonderful for that. And obviously still writing about rugby for the Guardian, so still talking to them here and there. And then it was just it was pure chance actually. It comes from it comes from another strand of what I what I do. Um a book about Abraham Lincoln landed on my desk at Guardian in New York in 2020, just before the pandemic. Um it's called Lincoln on the Verge. It's by Ted Widmer, who is a former Clinton White House speechwriter turned history professor. Uh it's about Abraham Lincoln's journey, rail journey to Washington in 1861, 13 days to Washington. I love Lincoln. I'm a Lincoln head. That's my history side. So I read it and I said, I, I'd like to interview that guy, do a piece. And I interviewed Ted and we got on like a house on fire. And in short order, he said, because we got on really well, we're having lunch. He was like, you got any book ideas? And I said, funny enough, yes, I do. Here's a, the, this West Point story needs to be told. And Ted, to his eternal credit and my eternal debt, leapt on it and to the eternal chances of fate he knew someone in boston named will thorndyke who had just bought a publisher godine and will played fullback for harvard in the mm. 80s so in the american way he knew rugby um right. he understood it and he saw the story straight through which i from, through no fault of their own any number of commissioning editors at, at hachette and Macmillan and penguin wouldn't have wouldn't have seen because they're not rugby right. guys and there's been a you know perpetual question about whether this is a rugby book or a military book. And the answer really is, well, it's both. I mean, you can't get out of it. Um, and Will, Will saw that, and Godin got interested and put me in touch with Josh Bodwell, their editorial director, who's been my editor on the whole thing. And it took, um, I guess it took three months between lunch and, and announcing on my Twitter account, it's a book, which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, quite happy with that and, and they were they were happy that's with, an exciting they, ride in a pretty short time then yeah and they they, they saw um they saw the book in the original in the in the original mm -hmm. um outline they right. when i when i said uh you know i think i think it's the book is the piece it's not the first i didn't by then i would have been perfectly happy to do it as a book with david but um by then i was like i think the book is from essentially i mean it goes back to the hometowns but it's essentially it's 9 11 to late 05 in Baghdad um, because that takes in the final season and that takes in where these guys went and what they did and what happened yeah. and they saw that and Godin have been absolutely brilliant None, nothing but support um, I have to say while I'm running with it um, what's amazing is Godin is a literary press and I'm a bit of a literary you know there's books there I'm a bit of a sort of literary wannabe um, and because they own Black Sparrow, which is a well-established American imprint, literary imprint, um, currently on the Godin website, when they have our authors, my picture is there, not very far away from George Orwell and Charles Bukowski. <laughs> and They're like, in good company, apparently. <laughs> that will do. That will do me. Yeah, George, that's an Bukowski. accolade in its own right, among the uh, the greats, right? <laughs> yeah. Bukowski, I don't know too much, but George Orwell is like lodestar time. George Orwell is my dad gave me his collected essays when I was about 18 and said, all right, if you're serious about this writing thing, read those. Yeah. Um, and I, now I'm on the same website as him. I just can't help being a bit smug. Fantastic, dear. <laughs> yeah. Boy, there are two things and that came out of that bit that you talked about and one of them i'm so completely tired of and and you may find yourself in the same place maybe not i don't know the other one i've i've never discovered to be more true and and that is the the, the never more true one is the fact that i found in american rugby circles you're almost one step away from knowing somebody else in american rugby circles you know, and you, you talked about that with making your connection with another yeah. author who knew, of course, a guy about buying the publish publishing company. And and that's wonderful to see that, that you know, even in, in our rugby circles that we can find uh, professional pathways. It's one of the brilliant things that I've yeah. always recognized. I've, I've come to learn as, you know, as an outsider myself, though, too, looking into rugby in America, that there's a rugby guy in every organization. That yeah. You can find yeah. Him. 
He's got a um, and, and it makes yeah. sense, though, because where are many American rugby players, you know, so to speak, born at a college level? Um, mm-hmm. And they all go on right. to be captains of industry or leaders in their own right. Um, so, yeah, there, there are many ways to be connected, and rugby certainly is one of them. And we all know some great examples. And you found yours. And, of course, uh, what I love about what you pointed out there, too, and sorry, I didn't mean to, to kind of jump in and step on your toes there, Rob, but, you know, it, why I think that, that it can resonate with audiences, your book, is because it captures an important time in history through the story of people who lived through it. Everybody can relate to it. They knew it. It doesn't matter what corner of the globe you were sitting upon. You kind of know that that this happened at that time. Exactly. Right. Then there's the human tale. Then there's the camaraderie. There's, you know, all the elements of rugby that have come to love, but also borrowed uh, by many other organizations like uh, military academies and so forth. Yeah. Great stuff, though. And it's all for us. We're talking about it for rugby, but we could be talking about it for two or three or four different reasons as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and, and I the, the piece that, that just uh, sticks in my craw, or it has been at least for the last couple of years, is you mentioned that somebody said that this book is going to put rugby on in America on, you know, the pedestal going to bring it to the forefront. And, you know, um, you might have experienced some frustration with that, but I, I, I was immediately reminded of the sleeping giant metaphor, right? Oh, right. You know, in, in America, America's a sleeping giant. And mm. uh, you've kind of already answered the question that we had set up, you know, uh, which was how long you've been working on this project. I think we got a pretty good idea. So I want to ask you, I want to go off the cuff here and ask you something a little bit different. You know, is what's your take on that, you know, uh, perspective that America is a sleeping giant? Is that true? Or is, are, are we in a continual state of, of lack of awakening? Yeah. Cause it irritates Rob in case you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I learned, I learned, I'll run. I learned very quickly. Um, I did my first American rugby piece 2013. Um, mm-hmm. Nigel Melville, coached me when I was a cult mm. when I was 19. There's a point when I was playing, for, I went to Otley, his club from a junior club because I was quite ambitious. I was reasonably good, but not uh, ultimately good enough. Um, I went there because I wanted to play better rugby and he was the coach then before he went to Gloucester, before he went to Wasps. Um, so I called him in 2013 first because I could. I called you, I was like, well, you know, I, I, I think I gave it like five, six months after I moved here and had a kid. And I was like, oh, I want to write rugby again. And I knew I had that in with him. So I did that. I did an in with him there for a piece about seven. And for the, from that piece, and for a couple of years, I was susceptible to the sleeping giant thing. Ah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got, I've got a bit more, bit more hinterland with American rugby, a little bit. I worked for Rugby News Magazine in London. We had some interest in knowing what we were talking about. Um, so I did the odd thing. I also, my older brother, much better than me at rugby, Owen, um, was in DC for four years when his wife was at the embassy in the early 2000s and he was linked into the Maryland exiles. Played for them. Um, yeah. And I played, I guested once under an assumed name against Potomac Athletic Club. I'm still <laughs> to know that they have... Uh, Statute of limitations is out. Yeah. No, nobody can get me for that. Um, <laughs> I got knocked out, so it didn't make any difference. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, 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 I took a line against this tiny little Argentinian fly half playing for Potomac Athletic Club, and he just absolutely cabbaged me on the spot. So <laughs> it would give you a convenient excuse for actually using your real name in the sheds afterwards, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so actually, uh, I'm not John Smith. I'm. Yeah. Um, so I, I had some. I had some degree more knowledge, but it is a thing, like most irritating cliches and i'm with you it's an irritating cliche because i've been here 10 years i've been writing and i know a lot more now um but it's most irritating cliches will have a root in something that's sort of true and the one of the one of the ways you know the the perennial crossover athlete question i mean the, the lazy thing which happens all the time in britain is a british rugby writer like will be brought over here for a premiership game on the east coast or whatever and we'll have a chance to talk to Dan Lyle or Ross Young or any any American rugby, USA rugby rep or to the premiership rugby exec or something. And they'll say something like, can't you just con- convert all the people who play college football but don't make NFL? Surely you'd rule the world. Which, of course, rugby people know isn't true. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. But 
the crossover athlete thing, and this is where the West Point story comes in, is a thing. Like, mo all these guys bar one, I'm writing about 15 of them eventually, if you actually bring them all in. Lesson for a book, never write a book with 15 main characters. Don't do it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. just, too much work right from the start. You're in, and you realize I'm halfway through it. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's crazy. Um, but they all came, all bar one, 14 of them came from other sports. They hadn't seen rugby till they got to college. So the crossover thing is a thing. Like Jeremiah Hurley, their loose head prop, was a wrestler until his final year. And he turned out to be an extremely good prop because he knew how to wrestle. Um, mm -hmm. All the other, you know, Most of the others were football players. But the wrestling thing stuck with me. And then when I went to the hometown of Zach Miller, the Rhodes Scholar on the team, phenomenally able guy who found rugby and just fell for it. And rugby was everything for him. Um, I went to his hometown out in Western, Western Pennsylvania, met his dad. This is you know, hinting that Zach isn't around anymore, which he isn't. Um, and Keith Miller is a lifelong wrestler and wrestling coach at high school in Western Pennsylvania. And to a British mind, that was a whole new thing to me. Wrestling is not a thing there. We, we know NFL, we know NBA. And likewise for me, coming from South Africa, and, yeah. and, and Rob, by the way, I don't know if you know this, is a wrestling coach himself, so you're speaking to him there yeah, too. So, so, so that's exactly it. I'm trying to say where, where there's a grain of truth is talking to Keith and going to the school. I've, I've written some line in the book about I got the impression you could if you could probably get you could probably find three world class props by throwing a ball into the corn and whistling. <laughs> that's obviously glib. That's a that's a you know that's a line. But it's the the sheer athletic talent in America and the sheer size of America is insane. Right. And it, it kind of it's insane to a Brit when you when this, the seriousness of high school sports, the seriousness of college sports. I played pretty decent college rugby for Durham, um, mostly second team, sometimes for sometimes first, um, different runs for three years, um, and we were just a bunch of beer monsters. We were good. <laughs> we, we, we were like top five in in England. We were a good team, but we were on the beer. We coached ourselves <laughs> here. When you see how high school sports and college sports is played, you see what that potential is. If rugby was taken seriously like that. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what could it also achieve? Stand, yeah, mm -hmm. it wouldn't stand a chance. So that's one of the things that's feeding the sleeping giant myth. Yeah. The sleeping giant myth is, is a myth and it's lazy. It's lazy shorthand. Yeah. British Read. You and I, you, you and I need to sit down for a cup of, uh, cup of tea, coffee, beer, because I'm in a hundred percent agreement there. I think we need to take responsibility for, development of this of, of this sport i think the the, the sleeping right. giant mentality it, it's almost like a passive approach it'll happen just gotta yeah. let it take its course and, and that's a good way to describe it rob it is it's just like it you know at some point we're going to suddenly wake up but it's, it doesn't happen that way you got to work towards it like that's anything else i thought and it, this is wishful thinking but i like wishful thinking um chicago 2014 at soldier field when it was sold out for the eagles and the right Island. i was up in the press box with a few other guys and i I had a bet with some American sports writers. I won a dollar, actually. So one of the only times I ever won anything. I thought I, I said the final score would be 68-6, and it was 74-6. No, I said 68-7. I, I thought the Eagles would get a try. Mm. Still a pretty good guess. Yeah, pretty good guess. And at top of, top of the game and top of my head now, I might be wrong. It was, I think for a while, it was either 7-6 or 12-6 to New Zealand. Just for the first 10 minutes. I'm not getting carried away. <laughs> but... It was quite close. The Eagles had put up Adam Sedol had kicked a couple of penalties, and there was a kickoff, and Blaine Scully chased it brilliantly and won it incredibly athletically in the air. He got he just went way up above a all black second row or something and won it. I think. Right. And eventually the attack ended with Scully going over, but it got called back for a mm. penalty. And it, I always think in wishful thinking of those few that minute, that two minutes of Soldier Field going ape shit. And the Eagles, they literally had the All Blacks on the back foot mm -hmm. for that fraction of a game at 12-6 down or 7-6 down, whatever it was. And it, it always just hits in my mind of like what could be here. And that is probably translates across right. as what world rugby, British rugby journalists, everyone else thinks could be here.
Martin, what we're going to do over here, though, is we've got plenty more to be able to discuss. But before we do so, we wanted to be able to draw attention to one of our partners that helps us do what we do each and every week here on the Rugby Rant podcast show. So we're going to take a short break to be able to learn more about one of these partners. And we'll be back in just a moment. When we pick up the ball, we also pick up a legacy. A legacy that stretches beyond your current team. A legacy built on the backs of those who came before you with hard work. And for those who will come after you, we promise it won't be easy. But we'll be there, supporting you on and off the field. And we're back. Thank you once again to our wonderful partners because we couldn't do what we do without the help of our partners. And we're going to change the rhythm a little bit. It's gotten, the conversation's gotten heavy, but it's enjoyable. You know, I think Ty and I always look to have those conversations with folks that come on that, you know, as Ty said, on many occasions, we sit around and it's like we're having a beer and a chat about rugby. And I think very much that this conversation has been a reflection of that. But we want to pick up the pace a little bit, make it a little bit more lighthearted for just a moment. So we're going to do the quick depth. For those that don't know, we're going to give Martin a choice. It's a choice of this or that. He's going to pick one or the other. He has to run with it, though. That's the only thing. He has to pick one or the other. He can explain it. He cannot explain it. We can move on. It's totally entirely up to him in that regard. So the quick tap is going to start, and we know that Martin is going to be moving from his beloved New York City, where he started to reside when he became um, you know, familiar with these lands in, in the United States. Uh, and he's going to be moving to D.C. So the question is, Better place to live, New York or D.C.? D.C. Sorry. House. <laughs> House. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. And yeah. you got three kids. You need the space. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah, D.C. is wonderful. It's even easier to find uh, those expat uh, communities in D.C., I think, to some degree, which makes it nice for, you know, especially for rugby. Um, all right, next one. Who has a better rugby IQ, you or Stephen Lewis the Lizard? <laughs> Me. Miles. Stephen Lewis is—he's my one of my best friends in rugby. So you know, I mean this with a, a best friend touch to it. But me, understood, <sighs> understood. All right, we'd have to—we'd be remiss if we didn't ask this question. Now that you've been in the United States for oh, almost a, a well, a little over a decade, coffee or tea? Coffee. He's I'm, I'm, coffee. Coffee the is entire life. British Isles now just like <laughs> rose up and just like you, I could feel the sigh from the other side of the world. <laughs> I, I have a feeling I should, I don't, I don't care about songs. I have a feeling that if I had been some Brit in Boston in 1776, I might have switched sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I love about, I, I actually had this conversation just the other day. It's a bit of a tangent, but it's a quick one. And I love American history when you get back to some of the quirkiest, pivotal moments in history. You know what? If you want to be able to piss off the British Empire and the whole taxation without representation, like, nah, just mess with their tea and dump it into the harbor. We'll start a war. <laughs> I must have been marked from an early age. I've always been a coffee guy. <laughs> well, it gives us one more thing to talk about and enjoy if we ever get the chance to get together. All right, last one here. Uh, and this isn't a this or that. I don't know what Scott was thinking here. Uh, who wins the MLR Shield in 2023? So, um, if I say San Diego, is that boring? I mean, it's no. pretty obvious to me. It can't be boring if it's your thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I don't say New York, Steve will will try and kill me. But then again, he's tiny, so um, <laughs> you've already called him out once on the show. What's twice? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I had breakfast with him the other day. It's just mutual abuse, which you know. Yeah, yeah but that's yeah. rugby banter, right? Yeah. That's what the relationships exactly. are yeah, between I'm, the boy. Yeah, those moments. The, the sad, the sad and tragic fact is, I keep telling him how much I love Scottish rugby because I do. Because I was brought up at the time when Scotland were very good, nineteen ninety, and so yeah. I just, He's like, yeah, yeah, you should. He won't give it the other way. He won't. He won't send him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course not. Of course not. All right, we're going to get back into some of the questions because obviously we brought you on to to talk about your book again. Uh, the book for those that are just catching up is is entitled "Brotherhood: When West Point Rugby Went to War." We've already got a, a flavor for this, and you touched upon this one piece earlier, but I think it is important, as Ty mentioned. Many of us can 
connect with the book in a lot of different ways. But one of those ways, especially for those that have been around for people like you and I, Martin, and I think we're about the same age. Now, I'm, I might be a little older. I should take that back. I might be a little older. But we knew where we were in 9-11. We know what happened that day. We can remember it was one of those iconic life moments. Obviously, it's one of the seminal moments in the story, uh, the transition from pre-9-11 to post-9-11. So run, pass, or kick. What do you think that that transition felt like for the men that you wrote about in your book? Obviously, run. Um, well, I mean, for them, it was it was existential. Um, the morning of 9-11, they were all in class. One of them, Matt, was in banking, the captain, which, as he said, was the most boring class they had to do. It's like how to run your how to run your platoon or your how to work as an officer and make sure your men are paid. Um, I think Clint Alenik was in counterterrorism, and he said to me that one of the last things his his it was the class before it all happened. One of the last things the instructor said was, "Sooner or later, someone's going to attack the U.S. It will happen." Five minutes later, it happened. Um, for them, everything changed. Um, not well, not everything, but you know, they they went from looking at going into a peacetime army to looking at going into an army at war, uh-huh. and the majority of them went combat arms. Um, some of the bigger guys went air defense artillery, which tends to happen. Uh, the majority went, uh, majority went infantry. Some went, some two flew, one went armor, so on. So they, after that day, they knew what they were going for. Um, and that's a whole different experience to me. I was in the rugby news office in, uh, Tottenham Court Road, London, 9-11. Um, one of our sales guys, I always remember it, came through to our little editorial section of the office and said, turn the TV on, a, a plane's hit the World Trade Center. And we said, yeah, how do you find, you know, it'll be a small plane. And then he came back and said, no, turn the TV on, a second one has hit. That's literally how it happened to me. And I sat and stared for the rest of the day. And then I literally, I went to Rosslyn Park. I went down to the club because it was a training night and training was off and we stared. Um, the same night, the West Point O2 team trained at West Point. The, they they spent a day watching TV, and then they went. It was a training night for them, and they went up to Stony Lonesome where they used to train and talked to their coach Mike Mahan. And it was decided that the best thing to do was to keep going because West Point was locked down. Nobody was getting off. Nobody was going down to New York to help. Um, but if you think of the worlds apart from two experiences of the same day. You know, that day sent them to Iraq and Afghanistan, the ones who went. They didn't all go. As, as, as the vagaries of fate have it, a couple of them never touched desert just because mm-hmm. they served elsewhere. Um, but many of them did, two of them in special forces, um, many of them in infantry. Some of the stories are in the book, some aren't, of the special forces guys. There's no point. <laughs> Although partly because Stanley McChrystal's published them anyway. You know, that gives me a really good window to kind of jump in here with the next question, if I may, Martin. Yep. You said some of those stories in there and some of those stories aren't. It must be a massive task. You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier and you said, oh, I made the mistake of getting 15 main characters, right? Um, there's so much content. How do you decide what's in and what's not? As I'm sure there must have been some great stuff that you eventually had to sacrifice and compromise to be able to get to your final product yeah what were those choices how hard was that very hard in some spaces um it's 110,000 words i think all told but that includes notes and um right. i was contracted for 90 but godin and nice um you can't tell everything it does have and again this isn't you know you don't want to give away too much about the book but the piece is out there that says it um it focuses on three stories, um, Zach Miller, Joe Emai, and Jim Gerbitz, who um, it really isn't giving anything away. When I first went out there in 2015, Mike Mahan was retiring. His office was at Anderson Rugby Complex was full of cartons. I'd shown up, this British guy from New York. No one knew what was going on, really. He sort of, I didn't know what to make of them. They didn't know what to make of me. I was too timid at the start. But he put a photo 
the seniors photo, the kilts photo that was on the original piece. The sort of striking. Right. Love photo. that photo, by the yeah. way. Ridiculous photo. Printed yeah, originally. Some people barefoot. Some people, you know, in shoes. Yeah. Some are like. <laughs> it was originally printed in sepia, so I didn't even have to fake that for the. Oh yeah. Timing. Um, he put that photo on the out on the desk, and I thought, "Wow, that's that's the thing." I'd already been I'd been given a guided tour of West Point by them by the PR department, and I was sort of gobsmacked. And he said, he pointed to three players and said, "They're no longer with us." And that's when I realised, obviously, there was a story. And then going into it more, there were different reasons they they died. Um, but it becomes the story of the Iraq War. Um, right. So it gives it that gave it a, a narrative shape that it needed to have. Um, it has about twenty-two chapters, I think. The chapters are quite short, and I've tried to give every player at least one story. Some of them are more central than others. There's a, there's a chapter on experiences at war where some of the infantry stories come out, which is probably in the service of the narrative um because you're building to telling the final story which actually isn't the final story because as rugby people know clint alenic died in 2021 after i'd pretty much written the book yeah um so some of the some of it was self-selecting it sort of had to be and there's things you can't do in some of the senses some of the special forces stuff you can't do anyway right right for obvious reasons yeah, although also other people have. I mean, Mo Green, the fly half, was in Task Force Green, co coincidentally, which was Stanley McChrystal's force of special uh, forces people who went after Zarqawi in Iraq in sort of 07, 08, I think. I have to check those dates and got him. Um, Mo was part of that. And he, when, I, when, when I talked to him off record, yeah, sure, talk about it. On record, go and see Stanley McChrystal's book. So I did because Stanley McChrystal's the general in charge. So that's that's <laughs> like that's the best way to to do it. There are other, other you feel I mean you'll have to see if it's successful, but you feel the responsibility to tell everybody's story at decent mm -hmm. length. So mm -hmm. The guys who went air defense, they still did it. They still went there. Um Dave Little, number eight, is very entertaining. He went into into air defense and then into missile defense and is very self-deprecating and funny about how he got to Kuwait and basically it had all been done. There was about a few scuds at the start of the war, which someone else shut down. And Dave spent a couple of months being thanked for it and then went away. You know, that's just, that's just fate. So it's, it's kind of the story of Zach, Joey and Jim. Um, Clint, there isn't, there's an epilogue about Clint, which presented a problem of having two endings, but we think we fixed that. Um, and everyone else appears and talks. And yeah, Matt, Matt Blinn, the captain, is a sort of guiding spirit. So is Coach Mahan, as they would be, because they're captain and coach. So I just I treated them that right. way. Um, and I think with most things, what you most books you're looking at, you're looking to produce uh, a story that will stand up without being exhaustive, and it's not an exhaustive history. Um, I, 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 sorry to interrupt. I, I got to ask you, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Martin, which I found very interesting and it ties right into something that, that Scott had asked us to ask about. I think it's something that Ty and I both are very intrigued by. You, you said that you, you went to Coach Mahan's office at West Point for the first time, getting an opportunity. He's about ready to move out. He's got hmm. cartons, you know, packed up and, and you said you were too timid Hmm. at that point and you wish you hadn't been so i i have to ask run past or kick what is one thing you would change about the process of writing this book or about the book itself as you went through the journey of writing the story well it'd be tempting to pass it but because it's slightly embarrassing but i won't i'll run with it um when i went there i mean i'm not a reporter i've never been a reporter i've been an editor my entire Grown-up life. I've right. always probably a different always, skill set. We get that. Yeah, yeah I've always written. Um, it comes in. It's mentioned at the very start of the book because I had to do an intro of the book of why the hell is this British guy writing this book? So I had to explain. <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, I've always written. Always wanted to write. Never been a reporter. Never been a door knocker. Never been a you know trauma reporter. Um, and when I went up to West Point, I I I, I contacted the 
um, PR department and said, I, you know, I'm a, I played against the team. I, I've got direct link. I want to see if there's a story here. Because I wasn't sure there was. Because if if 15 of them had had unremarkable military careers, perhaps there wasn't a story. I don't know. I didn't know at the time. And I went up there and, and Mike Mahan had the picture and he told me that three guys had died and he had um, two O four grads, Brent Pafford and Mike Ziegelhofer there to talk to me, who played with them. Ziegelhofer was first team. He was a very good winger. So he was two years ahead playing seniors again. He played against me. Um, he also ended up carrying the nuclear football for Donald Trump, which is quite something when you see, you see reference on CNN and think, holy shit, that's Ziggy. <laughs> Give a rugby guy a football and he can do it. (laughs) Um, But what I, all I did there was, and I have other regrets about the piece, um, but what I did there was I just wasn't sure I could see straight away that to do it properly would take a bit of work. And I, I'm a news editor who writes rugby quickly. Do a lot of, I do a lot of rugby interviews on lunch break or after, after work. Um, And I just thought, This is serious. This, it, it's like these three guys died young. I don't want to make a mistake. So I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to admit this because it shows that nobody knows what they're doing. I didn't put anybody on record on that first trip. I didn't get. I didn't turn my tape recorder on. I didn't put Mike Mahan on record. I didn't put Mike and Brent on record. And I think they were think they were thinking. I know Mike was thinking because he's told me because we've talked a lot since. Is this guy actually going to do it? Which you don't want to leave someone with that impression. And I, right. getting the Hudson Valley train back, I was like, yeah, this this is going to have to happen. <laughs> so I did, and everything turned out fine. And I got lucky again because I went in September 2015, just before we published it, to West Point to make a, a short two-minute video that's embedded in the original piece with a, a videographer about West Point rugby. Because just to tell Brits, really, like there is rugby at West Point, there has been for 60 years. Uh, and Mike was there. He'd just come back. He hadn't moved to California permanently yet, and he was there to watch. So I got Mike Mahan on camera and on record for the for the end piece, which came out a week or so, two weeks later. So I got lucky. It was like my own timidity nearly derailed it. Right. Yeah, well, you know, many, many lessons obviously learned along the way, and it's a long journey for you. And it's, you know, actually, I want to, it gives me the opportunity to dive into our last question here, Mark. And it's been a pleasure to be able to have you with us. Um, and before we head out, um, after this last question, I want you to be able to remind those that are tuning in when they can expect a release, how they can get a hold of it. Obviously, we yeah. want them to be able to experience what we're talking about here for themselves. Um, but through this process, as you so rightly pointed out, there were numerous challenges along the way and, you know, continue to be, uh, but many lessons too. Uh, I'm going to turn our attention to the next question here, and you all might recognize these words, but it's mostly for those tuning in. and kind of personifies the, the project that you've been working on with this book, The Brotherhood. So run, pass, or kick. USAR Hall of Famer Dan Lyle. Obviously, you should know that name very well, and so will many of our fans tuning in. He was quoted as having said, in rugby, we often talk on of going to battle with your team. Uh, it's just a game, of course, but in brotherhood, sport, war, and friendship, leap from the pages. This is what was said uh, by Dan Lyle in reference to, to, to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess, is it difficult to translate that emotion onto the pages? It's, I wouldn't say difficult run by the way um, sure. <laughs> i've run more with the ball in this than i ever did in 25 years of playing rugby. <laughs> um, every player's gonna have their moment to run right? <laughs> second row forward i did kick goals I'll give, give myself that. oh you're um, john eels eh <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, was. I was he, he copied me um <laughs> of course <laughs> uh it wasn't difficult because i really particularly obviously over the past two years three years of writing it dialed in so much, read so much, talked to them so much mm-hmm. that I found when last summer I sat down, usually at 5 a.m. every weekday morning to write for a few hours before uh, school runs and um, news desk shifts, that I was fully in it. It wasn't difficult, but it was, there is a sense of uh, responsibility to it. Mm-hmm. And it's not a sense of responsibility to 
what the, what in West Point um, milieu would be called the who are spirit because I don't share that, and it's not yet. Literally speaking, it's not yet my flag that these guys served. Should be. I mean, my wife's American, my three kids are American, and I'm American, but I'm not. Um, it was more that I think I've come to think they um, represent a sort of one, not the only one concentration, one expression of what rugby is, which is what Dan was getting at. I think in that in that quote, which was very kind of him to give. Um, the brotherhood thing, and it would be sisterhood too, if you're in a woman's team, it would be whatever you're in. Um, and the military metaphors of the game are very real, and it's a, it is a dangerous thing to do. It is a silly thing to do. It is something that you talk about like old, sol old soldiers uh, talk about. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to get that right. And, and I don't want to get people thinking that I think West Point rugby is the only the only game in town, as it were, the only expression of the rugby spirit, but it is a concentrated one of uh, expression of it. Right. Uh, the very nation, the very nature of the hothouse that West Point is, that's a sort of weird, amazing place that West Point is, which various people have said, I think Matt Sherman has said in his, in his quote for the book, isn't for everybody. It really isn't. But one of the, you know, I could go on about this for hours and I'll try not to, but one of the things the, a common thing with the O2 team is they found a place to belong. They found literally a brotherhood, right? Um, that got help some of them helped some of them get through for different reasons. Some of them struggled academically, some of them didn't. There were some of them were very sharp, um, but some of the ones who are very sharp, Mo Green, the, the fly half of the special forces guy I've spoken about before, was finished fourth in the class, which is makes him pretty clever. Um, but he's also an iconoclast. He, which part might be why he ended up in special forces. He thought that uh, academy order had a certain level of bullshit in it. And he found this rugby team, this bunch of outsiders that helped him through it. Um, and I, I, I can't stress enough that can be, that's exactly the same if you're at the University of Buffalo or you're, you're at um, Kenyon, wherever you are, wherever you pick it up. Or if, if you're at clubs in, in Yorkshire, like I, I picked it up, that's what you find if you find a good team. You might find a bad team. You might not get into it. You might find a team of people who, whose brotherhood is exclusionary and not good, which I've tried to mention in the book a couple of times. But they have a sort of bond there. And so, therefore, the hardest thing about writing it was trying to get that right yeah. without appearing to genuflect, which I hope I don't. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, as Ty mentioned, we're going to, we want to close this out. This has been, a truly enlightening hour. And, I, and I'm going to say this, you know, when, when the first announced this book was coming up and I'll give you an opportunity to talk about where and when and how people can get a hold of it. It was one of those things I said, well, I might have to pick that up. And and now that we've had a conversation, I hope people listening are feeling the same way. Uh, this is an essential read for me. It's on, it's on my list. Um, and it's certainly on my list uh, to send to my son, who's, who's uh, going to be starting his first year teaching history um, as it went to Lindenwood, played against uh, Army and 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 the West boys from West Point a couple of occasions. Uh, absolute loves loves history. I think he would be thrilled by this. So it, it's on my list now. I want to give you an opportunity at this point, Mark, to tell folks who are watching, who have tuned in, all the detail so that they don't miss an opportunity to pick up on what I think is a an essential work if you want to follow rugby in the United States. Kind of you. So it's Brotherhood when West Point Rugby went to war. It's published by Godine Press, excellent independent literary press based in Boston. Uh, it comes out on 17th of October, 2023. So the Rugby World Cup will still be going on, but it's very near the business end. Um, that is what it is. It's a time of year where we'll all be hopefully talking and watching rugby. Uh, and it's available in the US from uh, all the usual books, sites, and shops. So Amazon.com, uh, on a bound as a guardianista to mention bookshop.org, which is the website that pulls together independent bookstores who need support. I don't mind if you buy it from Amazon. Uh, Barnes & Noble, Target, everywhere you can buy uh, good books, it should be available. And hopefully there'll be launch events um, in that week in New York and DC, and then hopefully some tour events 
further out into America, but we have to. I have to work those out and do some couch surfing with players, former players. <laughs> well, luckily enough, there's always a rugby mate nearby yeah. in any town, anywhere. Right? You don't have, have to look very far. I have to say, just quickly, one of the best interviews I've done in the past ten years was was with Mark Cuban. Yeah. Oh, okay. Long known. One of the great rugby people that we know. Yeah. He. I was on a. I was on a coach to DC, summer 2018. I was. I was asleep. I'm on a bus, so that's why I was asleep. I was trying to get make it pass. And um, this Texas number I didn't recognize kept waking me up, and I got pissed off. And eventually, I answered it, having. (laughs) And. It was Cuban because a friend I'd asked a friend to put a word in for me, and I thought I would get like an email or something saying call this number then, and he just right. called me direct. Oh jeez! I, I apologized profusely for about ten minutes, and then we chatted for half an hour about rugby, and he said literally what reminded me of of it here. He said that in his days at the University of Indiana playing, there was always someone sleeping on someone else's couch, and there was always someone else who needed a uh, help. You know, we we sometimes had doc- he said we sometimes had doctors playing next playing second row with homeless guys yeah it's like there is and it's reduced and simplistic but in american rugby there still is a a really pure strain of that men's rugby women's rugby high school rugby college Mm -hmm. rugby the whole thing is everybody is in and doing it and um that's what i hope obviously cynically to tap into a bit with word of mouth about the book I, i think hopefully there's something in it for most people who are, who are interested in the game. Absolutely. And, and I got to ask, can people pre-order right now? Yes, you can pre-order now. And you can pre-order if you're not, if you're watching this from outside America. I've told my family this many times. Um, it doesn't have a British deal at the moment, but you can get it from Amazon, Amazon.com particularly. Wherever you are in the world, you can get it. Perfect. Awesome. Fantastic. And again, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to be able to spend this time together here with you on the familiar run, pass or kick interviews. Well, on this occasion was more of a run, run, run. Uh, But, you know, we gave you the opportunity to do so and you certainly took the ball in hand and did exactly as we asked, which is to run with it all. And for good reason, because the story, you know, is is one that people definitely have to be able to get their hands on myself and Rob, of course, and, and, and Scott will as well. Um, and we hope to be able to take a little piece of, of, of rugby magic with us uh, because that's what is really, you know, these intangibles inside the story, the connections, uh, the philosophies, uh, the metaphors that will be shared. Um, so many great lessons beyond its its, its scope of rugby. Um, so you've done a wonderful job bringing this to life. It's been a great journey for you and we wish you all the best and success. And we'll stay close to you to be able to share what success we can to help our way through the rugby community by sharing your word and their story, or most importantly, of those players themselves. So, Martin, um, yeah, it's 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 really for for uh, for us to be able to just say thank you. And I know, sorry, mm-hmm. I cut you off there, Rob, as well. I'm sure you wanted to echo the same thing. So, I'll hand it back to you. No, no, a hundred percent. We we sure appreciate you joining us and giving us uh, shedding some light on this this story that you're going to tell us in the rugby community uh, and 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 tell us about the history of West Point rugby, which clearly was 60 years of history. Uh, Certainly there's some great stories to be told and for people to learn more about an iconic program in, in the college ranks uh, who won a national championship uh, just uh, two years ago in 2022. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, so there you have it, rugby fans. Again, another great run, pass, or kick interview brought to you by myself, Ty, the Saffer Braga, on behalf of Rob, the Hammer, Hammerschmidt, and, of course, Martin Pengeli. We thank you very much for joining us, and we will hopefully see you at the next at the next interview coming up next week. So, again, thank you very much for tuning in. We'll catch you soon. Welcome to the Rugby Rant Podcast Show, your premier North American rugby podcast, growing rugby one fan at a time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.